0: You are listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr.
1: Alphonse Javet, a podcast that presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Here is your host.
0: In this podcast, we cover everything from churches and church planting efforts, mission and missions organization, evangelism, and unreached people groups, emerging movements and initiatives, justice, current events related to faith, and the persecutors church to author interviews, and more. Let's get to it. Hi, thank you so much for being here with me. And uh, we have known each other for some time now, and I love uh, our partnership together here in New York City, serving the Lord together. And uh, I thought it would be a good idea that if you introduce yourself. So why don't you go ahead and share with us, the audience, Uh, a little bit about you, your background, your family, your ministry, how you ended up here in New York City, all of that. Sure.
1: Thank you, Alphonse. So my name is Chris Klayman. I've lived here in New York City for 15 years with my family. As many New Yorker stories go, it's either them or their parents or their grandparents that had quite the journey to get here. Uh, So I... I currently serve as a co-founder, associate director of an organization called Global Gates. I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but it's a ministry that focuses on reaching the ends of the earth, the least reached peoples, least reached places of the world through global gateway cities like New York City. I do a number of other things as well. Originally from the Austin, Texas area, uh, which somehow led me to study in England at Cambridge for a year in undergrad, which somehow led me to have great relationships with Japanese students, both of which had never met a Christian where they're from. In fact, they studied the Bible with me all year long, went to church with me, evangelistic meetings, just lots of conversations and thoughts about about uh, what they were reading in the Bible, uh, but both of them on separate occasions when they were really disclosing you know, their, their deep thoughts about, are they going to decide, with counting the cost, are they going to decide to follow Christ or, or not? Both of them said, we can't. And they had some various reasons, but the two similar reasons they had were, we have never met Christians where we're from. You know, me growing up, I grew up in a large church, we always had missionaries come through and they always seemed strange to me like these are the people that were called to ministry and didn't fit into America so God sent them overseas and, and now that I'm a, a missionary I realize that's partly true. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I didn't really connect with with missionaries at that time, but everything changed when I heard those words from those Japanese friends. I've never met a Christian where I'm from and I didn't know it at the time, but that started me on this journey of one immediately realizing I don't know much about being a missionary, but I can go be the one Christian someone knows I can do that. And I began researching and and finding out this larger picture of what God is doing in the world. And the fact is 86% of Muslims, Hindus and Buddhists in the world do not know a Christian according to the World Christian Encyclopedia. 86% of Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists in the world do not know a Christian. Of course, we read scripture like, how can they know unless someone goes to them, and preaches among them, unless they're sent. And so all those things really kind of captured my heart towards the end of college. Uh, Somehow my Japanese friends in England led me to Mali, West Africa, uh, to learn the language of Bambara, which is a trade language spoken in in Mali and, and dialects of it in other parts of West Africa. I started hearing about these people groups in West Africa that I had no Christians among them, no missionaries trying to reach them. And I ended up moving into a mud hut, no electricity, no running water. What people think of when they think of, you know, traditional missions, uh, you know, a Westerner going into a small little village where they're the only white man someone's seen, you know, that was sort of the, the world I lived in. Of course, I've the missions world today is so much broader than that old picture, uh, but I ended up living among these incredible people, made good friends, but I came down with the second worst case of malaria the main doctor in in Mali had ever seen for someone taking a prophylaxis, uh, something to try to prevent the disease or lessen the effect of the disease. Long story short, ended up being medically evacuated twice over the next year uh, with complications of not being able to walk, not knowing if I would die, if I'd be crippled the rest of my life, going to see every doctor known to mankind and everyone saying the same thing. I don't think you're going to die, but dot, dot, dot. In that incredible time of trial and suffering and unknown uh, definitely uh Deep in my character, gave me a theology of suffering, which we often don't have with American backgrounds where we value safety and security more than just about anything. Uh, and really just identified with Christ more uh, through suffering, um, built up that resolve that, you know, I, God has called us to do whatever it takes in joining his larger purpose so that all peoples might come to know him and still having that same thread throughout my journey with the Lord of uh, be the one Christian someone knows or mobilize others to be the one Christian someone knows. So after being medically evacuated twice and really not physically being able to return to West Africa uh, for a long time, I ended up uh, getting married to my wife, Nicole, who also had a passion for uh, for for missions and living in West Africa but I couldn't couldn't move there with her with my health condition. so we began praying about next steps and the group I used to live among in Mali when I got sick called the Wasalu people. Uh, they were thousands of villages, no known Christians at the time, no one trying to reach them and kind of missions terminology at that time when I lived among them 20 years ago they'd be called an unengaged unreached people group basically means there's no one really trying you know to reach them the the gospel is not accessible uh cell phones weren't around in mali you know when i lived there today even in my no hut or my no electricity no running water village they have cell phones today so they have a, a lot more access than they used to have and we began praying about where to go, and we didn't want to stay in America. We'd experience what it was like to be that that one Christian someone knows. But someone called from New York and said, hey, there are all these West Africans here. We don't know much going on with them. Can you come and just check it out and help us know how we can, we can best reach them? I said, well, it seems like a way we can kind of connect with West Africans, at least we can check this off our list of places we're not going to go and and settle. And so we came for two and a half days, my wife and I, and the very first man we met, West African man we met on the first full day in New York was Wassulu. the same ethnic group I used to live among, one of 1600 ethnic groups in West Africa. Within five minutes, we learned that Musa, uh, this guy is the first Christian from a Muslim background whose wasp we'd ever heard of. Uh, what is your story? And he says, oh, let me go get some tea, which means it's a really long one. And I can't go into all of it, but he had this incredible dream, vision, healing in the name of Jesus, which is very common and God drawing Muslims to himself, uh, which led him to a Christian, so often in those dreams with Muslims, it's not, they don't become saved through the dream, it's often God pointing them to the scripture or pointing them to Christians for receiving the truth. And that's what happened with him. It really validated uh, the truth of the Christian Bible and validated uh, what Christians believe. And so much so that he he ended up being uh, healed of some uh, crazy disease he had the doctor thought he had one week left to live and Jesus healed him and then he went searching for Christians you know to find out uh, th- what it is that he's being drawn to ends up reading the Bible cover to cover in and, and months becoming a follower of Christ then he experienced severe persecution really for 20 something years his people socially isolated him tried killing him on multiple occasions and he ended up in In Harlem, where we ended up meeting this one day. And after hearing his story, I go, wow, you know, it's a miracle. And he says, yes, it's a miracle we met because for all of these years, I felt called to be an evangelist to my people, the Wasalu, but I've never known how because it's just been me. And I said, oh, Musa, I know it's a miracle as well, because every day for the last few years, I've been praying for your people to see the first church started among them, not knowing how I can be a part of that work because I'm half dead and I can't visit your country. He says, oh, tonight there's a Wasalu meeting in the Bronx. Do you want to go? And so some random Wasalu cab driver took us off to this Wasaloo meeting, hung out with them till 1, 1.30 in the morning. And this is our first full day in New York City. And so I, I don't take that as like miracles follow uh, me or us, uh, more that we were probably that stubborn about staying in America. And it took something like that for God to really open our eyes to a new opportunity he was providing. And that transition into, you know, a couple months after we moved to New York City, moved to Harlem, ended up spending half of our time with the West African Muslim population, over 100,000 West African Muslims in Metro New York, over 70 West African mosques, and uh, just this huge population. I would speak Bambara more than English on the streets of Harlem. They were just so prevalent. And in many ways, it it felt like living in West Africa more than it did, at least with the United States I was familiar with, and so ended up uh, spending time with them. But also realizing, wait, they're on the phone all the time. Who are they talking to? Come to find out, these these West Africans that immigrate to places like New York. They are what you would call in the in the African languages, best translation I could come up with is big daddy or big mamas. They are incredibly influential people who shape all of society back home. They are vetting new information, new ideas, new people, new thoughts. For what's accept- what, what's acceptable for our people to believe or change, and and change often comes slowly in these primarily oral societies that have been cut off from technology and and uh, a lot of different interactions with with different peoples, especially in, in the more village settings of Africa. And so I began going back and forth to Mali, just staying in the the homes of my friends from New York. Uh, I didn't even see my missionary friends sometimes. I would just stay in the homes of these big mamas and big daddies. And I, I realized how influential these people are, even on that first meeting or that first travel back to Mali when I had a, a good friend here. Uh, I call him Zumana in a book I wrote called Super Plan, A Journey into God's Story. I can talk about that a bit later. But Zumana said, hey, when you go back to Mali, don't worry about a thing. I'll take care of you. And I thought that was really interesting because Zumana, if you were to look at him just from the outside in the kind of economic totem pole of jobs in New York City, he was at the lowest. He worked as a a car washer from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. in the Bronx all night long, even in the winter in outside conditions or, or not fully covered conditions, washing cars. Then he would leave that job uh, and sleep for two hours and go to a second job 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., just kind of as a security person overlooking a store. And maybe one day a week he'd have off to cook and catch up on sleep and clean. Uh, wow, this guy uh, just has no time. He's, he's working, I mean, like 80, I mean, just ridiculous hours a week. What is he gonna do? How is he gonna take care of me? Well, this is what it meant. My car washer friend, the secretary general of the largest political party in Mali picks me up at the airport. His contact drives me back to Zumana's home in a middle class, middle upper class neighborhood that's completely built without loans. It's several stories high. It's a compound with walls, there's a Mercedes parked inside. He has uh, polygamous relationships, very common in, in in Muslim homes. He's got his his first wife on the first floor, second wife on the second floor. Status, you know, he's got multiple wives. That second wife had just got back that day from Dubai on a business trip. There's a Mercedes parked in the car. The next day, we go into the main market of the of the city and find out that he owns like the largest craft business in the major market of the capital of Mali has dozens of people working for him, finds out he owns other properties that he rents out for income, find out he used to be the vice president of the import export association of Mali. That's my car washer friend. And it just blew my mind to, to just to see how much influence someone like that had, you know, we often have talked about urban ministry, if you're going to go minister in the city, there are really two major categories. There's reaching the influencers, the culture shapers. These are the financiers, the people in media and communications, the one who are kind of shaping the dominant culture mm-hmm. in the United States. There's also this other category of the down and outs, the people in need, whether it be uh, pov- those in poverty, those dealing with with mental or uh, mental problems, drug addictions, alcohol addictions, or people who are just have society against them. There's a kind of a systemic uh, aspect where they are disadvantaged. There's some sort of need there. Well, these immigrant populations come to find don't really neatly fit into either of those categories. Often, they're very influential back home, And come here, but those influential credentials they had back home don't carry over into American society. So they find themselves working menial jobs. And so in some sense, they look like they're in the down and out category. But really, they're disproportionately Mm -hmm. influential for shaping society back home. So they're really culture shapers, but not so much American society as a whole, but really their society back home. And I was spending half of my time researching the ethnic groups of Metro New York. Uh, spent several years doing that, and just realizing this is common not just for West African groups, but really for all people groups. And it just depends at what level you know they're engaged back in their home country. In the case of like Jewish peoples, often they were fleeing you know whatever country they're in so sometimes the largest population of certain jewish groups are in new york you know compared to anywhere in the world largest concentration of Bukharan jews from uzbekistan is in one or two neighborhoods of queens instead of you know uzbekistan and so there are groups like that but a lot of them are incredibly connected back home like these west africans so as i'm experiencing you know what's happening with these influencers understanding the the landscape of really these unreached people groups, those with little or no exposure to the gospel of Christ throughout the metro area, you're talking about 2 million Jews in the metro area, million Muslims, half million or so Hindus, you know, 80,000 Sikhs uh, did a book called ethnicity, the nation's tongues and face of Metro New York, which really tried to display you know, not only lostness, but also Christian immigrant populations, and how they are are nearer in culture to some of these very unreached groups, and can be very strategic for reaching them. So as that is happening, and I'm experiencing what I'm happening with the West African uh, personal ministry involvement, in I so, said, you know, there's really something new that God is doing through migration and through technology. We are having new opportunities that really didn't exist you know 20 30 years ago to see our cities like new york as even major front strategic frontier uh platforms for spreading the gospel around the world and it's not even some great strategy or innovation to do so it's really just following through god is through something god has done you know acts 17 26 27 Paul is talking to the Athenians and he basically says, God is appointing the the times uh, and the boundaries of people's habitations so that they might seek him. And that's certainly the age we live in. If the gospel spread through Roman roads, as it spread out from Jerusalem in that first century AD, our modern Roman roads are the global migration that's taking place on unprecedented scales, but also how connected our world has come through technology. And so we started an organization called Global Gates uh, with a vision of reaching the ends of the earth through global gateway cities, just by doing, reaching out to the mooses of the world, you know, who have migrated here. They connect you to all of these least reach areas and peoples around the world, so we've actually seen the first Wasalu churches started, partly because of the influence of people like Musa and following through those relational lines back to his village and taking believers from Malian believers from the capital city with us that are near in culture and sharing the gospel with lots of people. And whereas Musa was the shame of society because of the decision to follow Christ in the Past. Now he's the honor of society because now he's their big daddy in America. And just seeing that platform of introduction into an area for Christians from the outside, whether they be from within the country or near culture within that area of Africa or wherever it is, or very distant culturally, like, a, like someone from America, Following through the relational lines of someone who's migrated into the cities uh, like like Musa is just a very natural platform that opens up doors in a much different way than like going in without knowing anyone, starting some project with a great infusion of money or something which already skews the relationship for being there. It doesn't mean those don't need to keep happening it just means that God has afforded a new opportunity in this age for spreading the gospel through these people who have already migrated and and uh, fit into so many different cultures they've they've bridged into so many different cultures
0: uh, yeah and I I love um, the 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 vision and uh, the approach to accomplish this vision of Global Gates and uh, I have seen, personally the impact of your organization in 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 New York and have heard stories uh, that you have shared um, even here right now and also through your book tell the uh, people please explain to um, our um, folks why um, why it's important for um, uh, your, uh, or not only your organization, but any organization to focus on the city, these cities. Um, and I, I know that uh, one of the best thing about your uh, approach is right now in New York, uh, I think you guys are the one of the most influential uh, organization when it comes to reaching the unreached people group. You have missionaries uh, either Directly from your organization or those or from other organization who are using your organization as a medium to send their missionaries in uh, other places. So there's a lot of that kind of things, things that are, those kind of things that are happening. But please help us to understand as church members or churches why cities are important and uh, why we need to uh, do urban ministry. Um, because most of uh, big churches are not. In urban settings.
1: Yeah, your your cities just attract this nexus of, especially in the unreached people group world, this this nexus of the least reached peoples from the least reached places of the world, but also it attracts immigrant Christians. Uh, you know, most migration around the world is happening from people who are dominantly Christian. So, like someone from a you know, West African example, or let me give this example. A lot of uh, t- the largest population of Tibetans outside of China, India, and Nepal are in New York City and Toronto. And so one of the things I wanted people to pray for in my book, Ethnicity, is pray for Indian and Nepali Christians to be effective witnesses to these Tibetans that have migrated and settled into their neighborhoods. So a Tibetan person in New York most likely has migrated from India or Nepal. So they came out of China, you know, uh, or what they would say is Tibet, and came into India or Nepal as refugees, and then from there, you know, migrated here, and so they settle into Indian Nepali neighborhoods. Well, sure enough, when the first Tibetans came to Christ in New York City, guess who it was through. You know, it was through Indian immigrant followers of Christ, uh, who just naturally had relationships with Tibetans and their neighborhood. So followers of Christ in general throughout North America need to see how strategic these cities are, not as even an end in themselves, but as a means for really spreading the gospel around the world. You have so many so many, the, the largest barrier for people from the least reached people groups of the world coming to faith in Christ is usually not the religion itself. It's the solidarity with the group. You find your identity and connection with the group. Once people migrate into cities, it's almost like they're on the fringe of that solidarity of their people that are reshaping what's okay to be their people. They're reshaping the boundaries of what is what is norm and what is acceptable to be. You know, Pakistani to be Gujarati to be Tibetan, and through their influence, what a great space for the gospel to reshape that. Uh, this book I wrote in the last couple of years uh, encapsulates that. In, in a word, I learned from one of our our you know new arrival missionaries from Bangladesh. He says, "You know, all these things should have happened to me in Bangladesh. I should have been killed." For my faith in coming to Christ. In fact, the Imam wanted my head to be cut off in the middle of the night, but it didn't happen. Do you know why? I said, no, no, why? Because God has super plan, super plan. And certainly that's taking place. Uh, And so this word of, if you leave behind, don't just invite Jesus into your story leave behind your story, live for God's super plan and what he's doing in redeeming all peoples to himself. And you're, you're gonna find, especially in our day and age, a lot of that is happening in and through cities. This is where the world is moving to and it's distributing out culture and, and, and the, uh, the reshaping of people's identities is, is taking place through the globalization of the world that's largely experienced in and through cities.
0: Amen. So folks, I strongly encourage you to get a copy of Superplan, A Journey into God's Story by Chris Clemen. It, uh, as he already shared a couple of stories from that, but it's also, it's almost uh, um, you know, modern day, um, uh, Hudson Taylor story, or one of those missionaries that we grew up uh, reading about. So it, it gives you a lot of, uh, Um, God's sovereign hand in a person's life but it also shows that how the mission is advancing so I I encourage you please get a copy but also if you happen to be in New York or if you are interested in serving in New York I encourage you and and if you're looking for some resource I encourage you to definitely check out Global Gates uh, website it's globalgates.info Is that right? Yeah,
1: globalgates.info. And just one other plug too for local people in New York, especially with Muslims. Uh, Alphonse and I actually got to work together and starting a, it's more than a conference. It's more like a a movement now that is networking different ministries and churches and individuals in New York to have a heart for Muslims and, and share the love of Christ with them. So check out Heart for Muslims. Dot com, heartformuslims.com. It's an annual conference, but also working on multiple events and seminars and uh, initiatives for helping the body of Christ connect with Muslims and local ministries.
0: That's, that's awesome, brother. And also there's another book out, uh, Ethnicity, uh, The Nations, Tongues and Faith of, uh, what was that? Faith Metro of Metro New York, My- yep metro new york yes so these two books are available and uh, please uh, look into those as i close this podcast this episode um chris i would like to hear a joke would you mind telling us a joke
1: a joke yeah i don't know if i have a joke for you I don't know. It
0: could be a Malian
1: joke. <laughs> what they. From
0: uh, one of your brothers, like uh, from Musa.
1: Oh, my goodness. A joke. Well, I'll tell you what they often find funny. How about that? <laughs> so they. Yes. Especially people that. Pioneer missions, by definition, always takes people from outside of the group to come in and share Christ with them, right? Whether that's even people from the same country, from different ethnic groups, it takes a foreigner coming in because there aren't believers that exist. And so there's always this desire to connect to a group, but realizing you're never really going to be part of the group. And that's ultimately not the goal. It's just to be as best as you can an incarnate witness for Christ until an indigenous expression that is glorifying to Christ within the culture, rises up from within it. And so there's a, a Bambara proverb that I would always tell my Malian friends when they say, oh, you know, Chris, you're like a Malian. You're just like a Malian. We, uh, you know, you you probably just came from Mali thousands of years ago and you became more white, you know, because I'm a white guy uh, through the years. And I go, oh, no, 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 no no matter how long a log is on the water, it can never become uh, a crocodile. And so Uh. they would just laugh and laugh and laugh, but I'll look at them and go, but it can still scare people. (laughs) And so
0: they
1: they always think that's the funniest thing. Oh, you tell the truth. And so these proverbs are incredible ways to kind of laugh, but also express a deeper truth.
0: Thank you so much. So there you have it, folks. Um, Looking forward to our next uh, episode next week with a um, with our next guest until then god bless you all
1: you've been listening to our urban voices with dr alphonse javed which presents christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry please check back for new episodes every week